Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Sarah Gare is a suicide loss survivor and holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. She has 24 years experience in the field of mental health care. Sarah is a proud alumna of Holyoke Community College Class of 98 and Antioch New England University Class of 09. Her graduate degree work focuses on military veterans and trauma. Sarah has worked as an outpatient clinician on a crisis team in regional settings, both for those with chronic mental health challenges and substance use disorders, and also with youth. She led a team of crisis counselors following the June 1st, 2011 tornado in Western and Central Massachusetts through a FEMA crisis counseling program. And she was the senior team leader for the FEMA-funded CCP responding to COVID-19 in Massachusetts. Since 2012, Sarah's worked as a suicide prevention specialist focused on men in their middle years and public safety. She's trained hundreds of first responders in trauma, toxic stress reduction, and suicide prevention. She is a QPR, Question Persuasion and Refer Master Trainer for the QPR Institute. There has been providing trauma response services throughout Massachusetts since 2009 and has responded to suicides, homicides, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, and child fatalities. She's also worked with many families after their loss by suicide. There are many other things I could say about Sarah, but I think it's important that we introduce her. This is Sarah Gare. Hi there. Hi, Elaine. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. It's excellent that so it looks like you've got some good weather happening there. And I have learned you're a pet person like me. Yeah. So already we have enough in common, I think, to go ahead. This podcast is really to do with my mission of ending the silence, the stigma, and the shame surrounding suicide ideation and mental health. And to that end, I bring you guests that are willing to share their stories of suicide ideation and sometimes being those that are left behind, which as the audience knows is certainly true in my case. Sarah, I'm going to let you go ahead and start wherever you want to and we'll just take it from there. Thanks, Elaine. I have worked in the suicide prevention field for about 12 years now. And one of the things that I say, it's a club that nobody ever wants to be part of. But when you get here and you find the other amazing lost survivors, 
you're certainly grateful to have other people who understand what you've been through. For me, I had my first experience with suicide loss when I was 17 years old. I lost a friend of mine. He had struggled immensely. We all knew that he was struggling immensely. He had been in some real trouble with the law because of his mental health conditions. And still, it was a really traumatic experience. He died suicide by, by police. And it was both all of the things that we think about with suicide grief, but it also was very traumatic to lose a friend that way. Well, very public, my God, Sarah. It was very public, yeah. And then just a couple of years later, I lost another very dear, not very close, but very dear. I don't know. Sometimes people don't understand that, but I say, look, there's people who come into your life that are, you know, a big part of every day. And then there's other people who, for whatever reason, you just connect with them and adore them. And even though they're not there all the time, they're really important to you. And so I lost my second friend to suicide in 1997. And he also died a very violent suicide. And again, it was both the trauma and the grief. And sadly, I lost my very best friend six months later, suicide. And so that's what we call a cluster of suicides where there's a series. And that's one of the things that we talk about clusters of suicide, but we don't talk about being a lost survivor of a cluster of suicides. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Especially as a young person. And I I, I was not even 21 years old yet. My best friend had been 21 for six days. Oh my God. Yeah. It was really life shattering. It really was life shattering. And so I loved your opening when you talked about the forgiveness piece. Yeah. Because the anger is such a hallmark of suicide loss. Mm-hmm. And, and it's protective, right? Like it's, we want somebody to be accountable. We, it's a way of protecting ourselves. But it's also one of the things I talk a lot about is the power of finding forgiveness. Oh, I absolutely. And that's such a good point because like you, I lost my friend Andrea when I was 16. She was not to be 16 until the beginning of February. This was New Year's Eve. And it was actually, along with all the other buried pieces, I didn't allow myself to go through those signposts of grief, if you will. I was so wrapped up in denial and not feeling. This went for almost 30 years before I allowed myself to be angry, to to rail at why this happened. And it is really interesting that there was never anything. I'm an awful lot older than you. I'll be 68 in November. And there was absolutely nothing. You weren't even allowed to utter the word. And it made it even more difficult because we were of different religions. Mm. And, and back in the early 70s, that that was another point of shame that it's this good friend of mine, I couldn't come out and explain to anyone what had happened. Because quite frankly, I didn't know. Yeah. And I think, uh, I'll let you take it from here, but I think that, for me, was one of the biggest pieces 
was having absolutely no answers. Yeah. For my first friend who died by suicide, his family was very silent about it. They, they chose to have a private service, which I respect that choice. But what it meant for all the friends is that we had, we, we didn't go through that ceremony, which is really important for healing. Yeah. Um, and I think we made some progress from when you experienced your loss to when I did. We, the other two families did. I acknowledged that it was suicide. Yeah. Um, but I feel like where we didn't make progress was there was absolutely no support for those of us left behind. Yeah. And it's part of what made me so motivated to work in postvention. And yeah. say, you can't leave people to suffer like this without giving them any preparation and without helping to build those social connections for them. Within weeks of my best friend dying, I had people asking me when I was going to get over it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, I don't know, and maybe never. And, uh, and the outcome was I ended up not maintaining a lot of those relationships and of course becoming more alone because I didn't want to be yeah. around people who didn't understand, you know, and so I, I feel like we've made progress, but we still have a really long way to go. Oh, yeah. um, it's, it's why I'm excited about some of the things happening, like the lost teams and the responses, because it's one of the things I talk about is it's not just I've grieved, right? I've lost yeah. grandparents. I've lost my dad. I've, I, I have lost people and I've experienced grief. Suicide's different than that. Yeah, it is. And then, Yes, it is trauma, but I've also been through trauma. I had my house burned down in the middle of the night, right? Like I've been through those things and suicide is different. And so I try to talk about how it's the grief and it's the trauma and it's what I call the soul exhaustion. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's that's the term I'm using. And I'm getting a lot of great feedback because. Love that. The piece that nobody talks about is what happens to the essence of who we are as a person when we go through this. How yeah. can my best friend leave me like this? Yeah. How did she not call me? Who am I in this world if I can't even protect this person that I love? There's so much. How did I not know? How did I not how, know? How did I not see? Why didn't I ask the right questions? I didn't even know what the questions were. There's so much that attacks about suicide loss that attacks the who we are. are. Yeah. And so that's the piece that I'm really interested in because I feel like people do, they're doing work about the grief. They're doing work about the some, very little, honestly, but a little bit of work around the trauma of it. Um, But I have never heard anybody actually talk about what happens to the essence of who we are as people, especially the parents. It's devastating when they lose a child to suicide. Oh my God, yes. It's shattering. And so that's, all of this came from, we call this the post-traumatic growth, but all of it came from losing my best friend to suicide and realizing that there's no words that we use right now that explains the, the experience. No, no. What you said there, that soul exhaustion, first of all, is really good but there's that I don't know what to call the unanswered questions 
take on an entity of their own. It's like you're dragging a, an unresponsive person with you everywhere you go. Yeah. Those questions are always there. And I don't know about you, but for the, the first year, I was always ready to protect myself and to protect Andrea from those questions from other people. Whether or not they were going to aim them was not even a question at that point. It was just, there becomes this mantle of, I'm the gatekeeper. I have to be on guard. I have to be ready to support her, to stand up for her because she's no longer here. Yeah. You, you actually just referenced two things, um, one of which is actually talked about pretty widely in the suicide grief community. Um, and the term, although he'll say that he didn't coin it, um, it was coined by a Dr. Jack Jordan. And he didn't coin it. It was actually a mother who had lost a child to suicide who coined it. Um, but she called what you're referring to, she called it the tyranny of hindsight. And Ooh, it is- That's good. It is good. And, and that is unique. Not, it, it's not that suicide is the only time that people can experience that, but with suicide, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to experience it. And that's exactly what you were talking about, Elaine. It's the, why didn't I know? Why didn't she call me? For me with my best friend, she died on her seventh suicide attempt. I was not shocked or excuse me, I was not surprised, but I was still shocked. Yeah. You're still shocked. And, but a lot of it was why wouldn't anyone listen to me? Why did people fail her so badly? Why did they just drug her and drug her instead of asking what had happened to the essence of who she was? I really, trauma-informed care wasn't it wasn't really a thing back then. Mm -hmm. And so she got all these diagnoses and was told how broken she was. And so I spent a lot of time going, if just somebody had understood trauma and had said, nothing's wrong with you, you're responding in a reasonable way because of what happened to you. um, I wonder if that would have changed things. And so that was my tyranny of hindsight. Um, the other thing that you're talking about, and this, I did not coin this, it actually was first said to me by a firefighter who had lost his brother, who was also a firefighter to suicide. And he said, Sarah, every day I have to hold honor guard for him every day. And as soon yes. as I heard that honor guard, yes, yes. And, and as soon as he said it, it, yep. And I pictured the tomb of the unknown soldier and the silent marching back and forth in front of the tomb, I realized I've been holding honor guard. Yeah. Because there was this feeling that one, like you said, having to defend her. And I certainly had that experience. I distinctly recall, I'm sure a well-intended person trying to tell me how selfish and horrible a person she was. And I think that was trying to make me feel better. Listen, you know what? You love her, but if you really saw what a jerk she was, you wouldn't love her and it wouldn't hurt that bad. Like I think that was the goal. But the outcome was 
um, exactly what you're saying. I had to defend her. And, and I realized that there was that having to defend and protect her. But there was also this fear that I had that I found out others have that if I stop marching in front of her tomb, Ooh. it will be as though she never existed. And listen, there's been moments where that's been a little bit confirmed. When she first died, I would bring a flower, a rose to her grave on the anniversary. And then the second year I brought two. And the third year I brought three. And the fourth year I brought four. And every year I would go and other people had brought flowers. And then one time I went and there were no flowers. And for the last several years that I had done it, there were no flowers. And I realized and that's okay, right? That means that people have moved on in their process so they don't need to still do that. Yeah. But it also elevated this sense that I have to hold on or guard for her. I have to. Absolutely. Oh yeah. my God. That That's so well put. And coming from the time I did, we didn't dare look for help or tell anybody you had weird thoughts. You just didn't. Right. And I guess I was in a bit of a fugue state for the two weeks after because Andrea was Jewish, which meant she had to be buried by sundown the next day. And everything was so fast, so fast. and so out of our comfort zone. We were Catholic, the, the group that hung around together. So it, it was confusing on so many levels, but I came to at school being carted off to the office by the English teacher, Mr. Gamble, who had only met me the first week of school because I had gone to a different convent school before this. I had this long, stupid story, but I decided I wanted to be in a public school and I was, had taken some guy by the hair and was banging his head on the desk. And nobody really understood what was going on because Andrea went to a totally different school. They had heard because the guy was talking about this dumb girl who killed herself for a boy. And I guess I just snapped. I remember nothing of those two weeks. I remember getting to the office and Mr. Gamble trying to explain to the principal what had happened. And he remember saying, I have no idea what, what happened. I have no idea what triggered this. And me trying to explain to the principal because he didn't know. None of them knew because you didn't talk about it. Yeah. You, my friend died. You, you, and you couldn't stop at that. Because these were adults, they wanted to know. <laughs> right. So it it does, it makes it very um, challenging. And what you say about dwindling off after the years. Here we are, almost 52 years later. And our other friends, they completely moved on. Yeah. And, and that's nothing against them. Not at all, but my story took a, a, a different turn and Andrea's gravesite came into play later down the road. So there, there was always this 
weird, tenuous connection over and over again. And it's, uh, it's good to hear from you that it's not just me. No, I think that's one of the things that it's why I became so passionate about doing postvention work because nobody told me about the night terrors. Nobody told me about the flashbacks. Nobody told me that I was going to become very reactive to things. And so no, nobody told me that I was going to cry all the time. Nobody told me that I was going to gain 60 pounds in a year. Nobody and so I really felt like it's going to get me too. It had gotten three of my friends. And for years, I really felt like I'm okay now. But if things go wrong, it's going to get me. And it's this hard thing that, that people don't talk about, like you're saying, and, and, and we still don't talk enough about it, yeah. but we're starting to talk more about it. And we know that the risk for someone who's a loss survivor experiencing suicidal intensity way higher. Is, is way higher. Uh, and you know what? It's important to prepare people so that they know when they have that experience, when they have those night terrors. I had recurring night terrors, basically the same thing, um, at least for a couple of, And I really thought I was losing my mind. I really did. And when I gained all of that weight, and I can only describe it as, when I was at my best, it was emotional paralysis. Yeah. yeah. And when I was at my worst, it was just everything was collapsing. And, and it was this ping-ponging back and forth between those places for probably a solid year and a half, two years. Oh, yeah. I, and I just wonder, I can't say for sure, of course, but if there had been somebody who had been there with me who said right away, here's the things that might happen. Yeah. And if they do... I want you to know it's not because you're going crazy. It's because that's what happens to people when they experience this. And listen, I have good reason to believe this. And let me just share, if you don't mind, why. I was going through my graduate program. I was exactly halfway through it. Um, and I was actually studying trauma in the context of veterans, right? So I was very familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder. I had an internship at a veteran's home. And my house burnt down, right? In the middle of the night with my family and it was horrible. And the next morning after everything calms down, I'm offered a shower, which sounds like a great idea. I get into the shower and I close my eyes. And as soon as I close my eyes, I'm back in the fire. And it was a very distressing experience. Yeah. And I said, open your eyes. And I knew right away that I just had a flashback. I knew exactly what had happened to me. And I knew to take some deep breaths. And I knew that part of the reason it happened is when the water hit my hair, it made the smoke smell come out. Yeah. Right. But I had all of this understanding about trauma. So when it happened, I knew, Sarah, that's a normal thing to have happen right now. Right. And I thought to myself, God, if nobody had ever prepared me for that, it would have been. Yeah horrifying. It was very unpleasant. Please don't take me the wrong way. Absolutely. And it really just reaffirmed for me the importance of making sure that people know what types of things they may experience after having this type of loss. Yeah. Yeah. I, that to me, it's absolutely critical. 
I think books need to be out there because what you're saying is absolutely bang on. And, and that's the beauty of the support groups that are out there. AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, has support groups around the country in person and virtually. People often think that like all they do are the walks and yeah. that's not true. Um, and the they, Samaritans as well. And the Samaritans as well. And so getting to those support groups right away, I hesitated because when I had my loss back then, a suicide loss survivor really was only family. Yeah. And even though I knew where there was a group, I wouldn't go. Uh, and I wouldn't go because I felt like I have no right to go because I'm a friend and not You're family. Interloper. And also I was afraid the family might go. So I didn't, yeah, so I wouldn't go, but about eight years after, or maybe seven years after she died, and I'm going to date myself right now, big time, I found Yahoo groups ah, okay. and there was a Yahoo group for suicide loss survivors. And I sent them an email and I said, listen, I just need to be really honest and upfront with you. I wasn't family. She was my best friend. It's okay if you guys don't want me here. But if you do, I would really like to join your group. And they were so amazing to me. They were, so, they said, friends or family that you choose. They were just so fabulous. And when I've often thought, I didn't have to suffer for seven years by myself. And I don't want anyone else to suffer for seven years by themselves. So whatever the barrier is, it's not like it used to be where the only groups were, if you got up and went to the local group. Yeah. Um, there, there's virtual groups. There's all sorts of places. Oh, yeah. There's so much now that there's an internet. My my parents, I turned to drinking and drugs in high school because then I could be numb. Right. And my parents didn't understand what was going on. Nobody did because nobody talked about anything. And their solution at the time was to take me home to Scotland okay, like more than 4,000 miles away, where basically I found a new group of friends that I could do drugs and drink with so that I didn't have to feel there either. And it is what it is because you didn't talk about it. One thing I, I do have to say and, and acknowledge, Andrea's aunt, Yeti, who was so lovely, we were allowed, the Catholic girls, her parents allowed us to come and sit Shiva with the family. And Aunt Yeti explained to us exactly what was involved and what it all meant. And this woman to this day is, I believe that most wonderful human on the planet. She went through Auschwitz. Oh, wow. She talked about, we saw her tattoo she talked about it a little, and yet she was genuinely happy and joyous. And every day that we went to Shiva with the family, she would reinforce that we had to go on living. The best thing we could do, the kindest way to remember Andrea was to live our lives and not to fall by the wayside which to be able to take herself out of her grief after everything she had lived through 
worrying about us was just absolutely incredible. So it's, she was the one person that sort of said there, there would be a light at the end of the tunnel at some point. She was not a counselor or didn't have any, didn't, certainly didn't understand that the depths to which I had sunk. But I will tell you, because as a, a survivor, you'll understand. At 11, I think it was about 11.30, I was babysitting New Year's Eve. And Andrew was at home with her elderly aunt and uncle. She was looking after them because her parents had gone out and her brother had gone out. And Emmy and Morris were, I think, 94 and 96, respectively. So they were, I didn't want to make a scene. I dialed because you dialed the phone back then. And as it hit the last number, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, we were supposed to go to the Alice Cooper concert the next night. And I would get us both grounded. There's no way we'd be able to go if I woke them up. Oh, so I slammed down the phone before it clicked through. And that was my burden, if you will, Yeah, was what if I had just let that call go through? Yeah. And I'm smart enough to understand to this day, it wouldn't have changed a thing. Yeah. Nothing, and that's nothing. the tyranny of hindsight. That's, yeah. you know, and here's the thing. I don't know whether it would have changed something or not, because we know that sometimes it is something as small as a phone call that does change things, but there was no way you could have known that. And so that's part of, as lost survivors, that's the forgiveness we have to find for ourselves. Yeah. That we did the best with what we had. And if I'm sure that if in that moment you knew or even suspected that could have made the difference, you would have sacrificed the concert. And so that's a big part of is finding the forgiveness for me because I became a suicide prevention specialist, which means I ended up learning never all there is to learn, but as much as I can about suicide. We used to joke, she and I used to stay over each other's house, but the vast majority of the time we were at my house and, and we would laugh at how much she could eat. She was an incredible athlete, um, a, a star soccer player, and was always on the move. And so it, I really never thought much of it. And I also never thought much of when I would stay at her house, we used to play a game almost like the refrigerator door game, where you would mix weird things together to try to make a meal. Ah, okay. And I never thought a lot about it. Really, I don't know that if I thought about it at all, to be honest with you, until several years after she died, I was at a conference and the session was about the role of food insecurity in suicide. Oh. And as I sat there, I realized that wasn't a game. It was a game to me because I didn't live it. That wasn't a game. The reason we were doing it is because there wasn't enough food in the house. And years after she died, I realized my best friend had been food insecure. And the guilt and the shame and the devastation that I had, you know, going, I never, it never hit me. I just didn't recognize it. 
And that's the tyranny of hindsight. And that's the other piece is obviously that tyranny of hindsight is usually the most intense in the first year or two years or three years, but it's never all the way gone either. When I still, and then I had to go through self-forgiveness and say, Sarah, you were 15, you were 16. We made a game out of it. Like you, you had no reason. You didn't know anything about being food insecure. We had no reason. You had no reason why you should have known that. But that's really the process. So when I talk about soul exhaustion, I also talk about the importance of soul care. Yeah. In our world, everyone talks about self-care. And I think it's been so overused at this point. And it's really superficial. So what I'm trying to do is teach people about soul care which is what are the things that we need to do to take care of the essence of who we are. And so I actually just did a TEDx talk a couple of months ago and it's soul exhaustion and forgiveness. You can actually find it on my website if you want to watch it. And it's really looking at how forgiveness is part of taking care of the essence of who we are because that anger will eat us up. It'll just eat us up, especially when it's aimed at ourselves. And that's been, I've had to forgive the people who hurt her. I'm not at a hundred percent forgiveness. Yeah. I'm closer, but I, I'm going to admit it's been 25 years. I'm still not a hundred percent over it, but, but it no longer eats me alive every day either. But the other piece was forgiving myself. I said a lot of things to her that as a 16, 17, 18, 19, even 20 year old, I was trying to help. But I know now that maybe it wasn't what she needed to hear. Yeah. I have to forgive myself too. Absolutely. And that is is the piece that that I guess I'm still working on. But it was interesting because I I don't know if, if you have discussed with your peripheral friends. But we a number of years, probably a decade after, I had run into a couple of our friends. And one of them mentioned the fact that one of the guys that we hung around with, he had always blamed himself. Mm. And unfortunately, he died. And we never got to talk to him, which was, I think, why we were talking at that time. But it was like, oh, wow. Every one of us, as we taught, every single one of us felt we had missed something. We had not done something. We had, if only. And it, for her, this was a an absolute first time event, one one of. And unlike your friend, there was definitely no food insecurity. In fact, she was the one person we all thought she had the greatest life in the world her parents traveled all the time and always brought her things and yet there were a couple of little times where she would say inappropriate things to her mom and I think oh and I don't know if it was a like maybe from our perspective parents that traveled so much was a good thing and maybe it wasn't from hers 
And, but that's an example of the hindsight, right? Yeah. yeah. And I've had a lot of decades to consider this. Yeah. Well, you, and that's, that's part of the loss is that we try to figure it out. And I'll be honest with you, while painful, and it has been painful, the more I've learned about suicide, the better I understand it, the more peace I have. Yes. There's a lot of components that came into play. And the other thing is that I can take action. So it's really another piece of what I talk about for soul care is the importance of meaning making. I don't believe there was any inherent purpose in her death. I don't like some people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. I don't subscribe to that. It was her death was nothing but tragic. That's it. That's all it was. The meaning comes from the work I've put into making it have meaning. And I can now say, look, I have gone out and trained well over a thousand first responders in suicide prevention, well over. I have provided psychological first aid to dozens of people who have lost a loved one to suicide. Maybe, I, I don't want to say hundreds because I'm not sure that would be true, but many people. And all of that is in her honor. Yes. And so for me, a big part of my healing, huge part of my healing has been making this world a slightly better place. I'm actually chair of the Central Massachusetts Suicide Prevention Coalition. Um, I speak nationally. And in fact, in a eight weeks, I just got the email this morning. I'll be in Slovenia. You got it. At the International Association of Suicide Prevention. And so... When you take the tragedy that's happened to you and you make something good come from it, mm -hmm. it's that's part of our soul care. That's part of how we take care of the essence of who we are. And that's been a big part of my healing. It's, that's such a good point because it, although it took a very long time, not so if Andrew's death was tragic. And yeah, there's no two ways about that. What has come of it now, this podcast, is my thank you to Andrea. Because in leaving me behind, in showing me the pain, in giving me all that goes along with being one left behind, she kept me here. And that's why I say she gave me the best, worst gift you could ever give a human. Yeah. There's this woman named Penny Rock. I'm terrible with names, but I always remember Penny Rock. She was, I'm going to try to do justice to her story. She was a, a triage nurse in Vietnam. And I saw her when I was doing all the work with veterans. I saw her, she came to the Connecticut State House and was telling her story. And she talked about how she was the one who had to make the decision whether or not a soldier went to surgery. And if they didn't go, they didn't live. And so she had been nicknamed the angel of death. Oh and, and she told the story of sitting with these, I, probably all young men yeah. and holding their hands and singing to them and listening to their last thoughts and wishes. And you just, the, grip on your throat the whole no. time she's in. The fact that she could tell this story without sobbing was absolutely mind-blowing. What really struck me is at the very end of her story, she said, I would not wish my experience in Vietnam on anyone. 
but I also wouldn't give it away for anything. And I used to have a lot of guilt in a way, because like you're saying, I don't know where my life would have gone if all of this hadn't happened. I think there were several things that turned my life around, but I have found a community in the suicide prevention world. I have made the most incredible friends. I have done work that means everything to me. And that it wouldn't have happened without her having been my friend, but also without her having died. Now I wanna be clear, I would give it back. Oh yeah. I would give it back if somebody came to me and said, hey, we can go back all that time and she doesn't die, but you also don't get, I'd say, take it, you can have it back. (laughs) But I don't have that choice. And so I do have to acknowledge that it brought some really positive things. And Elaine, that being able to reach that place is what we mean when we talk about post-traumatic growth. That when you're able to reach that place where you can say, good things have come from this horrible experience. Because the first several years of the loss, it's just tragic. Everything is just tragic. In fact, for me, everything everywhere was tragic. It was. Um, Because I couldn't feel the joy. I couldn't feel excited about anything. I couldn't feel happiness. I couldn't, like you were saying, right? I, I just... I didn't feel any of it. And so that's part of the healing process is being able to say there's silver linings, even in the darkest of experiences. I know if I was given the option to go back, I would definitely want to, but I couldn't because going back would mean it would have been my life that ended. Mm And here's the truth. If I could go back and change it, but she was still going to suffer and she was always going to suffer, I wouldn't change that. That is the caveat for me is I wouldn't change that. And that gets real complicated. Should we keep people alive no matter what? And I'm one of the few people, and I'll say this anywhere, in the suicide prevention field that says... No, I agree with you. No. So if she was going to have to continue to be in the pain she had been in for so long, then I wouldn't change it either. But that's a powerful silver lining that what happened to her, even though it was so painful for a long time for you, but at at the end of the day, it it saved your life. Again, I have two children, five grandchildren. It truly is. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I have to say thank you for what you've done with your option. Because I can tell you, it takes an incredibly strong human being to work in the field you do. There's some days that are hard. There's some days. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are. But I'll be honest. I stay because of the people. I stay because of the other lost survivors. I have met the most. I have one of my best friends in the world. Her name's Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. And she lost her brother Carson to suicide. And she 
is doing some of the most amazing work. She's the one I'm going to Slovenia with. Oh, lovely. And so I made one of my best friends in my whole life because of this loss and through this work. Uh, And that's what keeps me. There's days, Elaine, there's days that I don't want to keep doing it. But I've also learned to have boundaries. I've learned that I don't have to read every devastating article. I don't have to show up for things that I'm not asked to be at. Yeah. Uh, So I have learned to have really good soul care um, because I've burnt out. I have burnt out. I've gone through burnout. And each time I go through it, it's different for other people, but I get very physically ill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I realized, excuse me, uh, a couple of years ago, I have got to take better care of my spirit. Yes. If I want to stay in this work. So I'm learning that balance. Part of how I have found it is I love camping. Full confession, it is glamping. I am in an RV. I'm absolutely glad to hear that. Yes. But I love being at the campground and I get to watch all the little kids running around and having so much fun and just the sunshine and looking, waking up and having my coffee, looking at the, it's actually a pond, but we're not supposed to call it that. We're supposed to call it the lake. And that's a big piece of why I am actually right now, I'm excited to tell you, I'm working on a workbook called Soul Exhaustion and Soul Care. I have brought together a team of amazing people from around the country who are helping me to do this. Uh, I hope when we are ready to publish, maybe I can come back and be on your show and talk. I was going to say, oh, I will have you back in a heartbeat. Yes. So please make sure, Elaine, that you, when you get a minute, subscribe to my newsletter on my website. I do not bombard people with stuff. I send it out pretty rare, but I will absolutely be sending out updates about the workbook. And I'm really excited because there is a pain that we can't change. No. change. But what we can do is reduce the amount of damage. And I believe that soul care is the way to do that. So obviously exercise, diet, those things, getting sleep, like those are bare necessities. Those are the basic needs um, to exist. What I'm talking about is the next year, which is how do we find life again? Yeah, and be able to actually find joy. That's right. If you don't attend to your soul, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So I'm really excited about it. And I'd love to be able to share with you and your audience when we're ready to publish. We, we will absolutely have you back. And the audience knows all of the links, the link to Sarah's newsletter, the link to all the updates about the workbook, et cetera, will be on the, the page with transcription and everything else, because that's critically important. And you can stay tuned because Sarah will definitely be back. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you, Elaine. Yeah. This has been wonderful, and I think this is probably a a good place to wrap up. What are we looking at in terms of time frame for the workbook? Do you have an idea? I have written um, this. I have published six other books. And one thing I have learned, they're all on my website if you want to check them out. One thing that I've learned is if you think it's going to be out in six months, it's going to be a year. But what I did is I created a timeline. So myself and my contributors were all on a timeline. My goal is to have it out for review by January. Oh, lovely. So I am really hoping 
definitely my goal is to have it to the press by by next June. Perfect. Perfect. Right. So before the end of 2024, that's Sarah will be back, if not before. I'm sure there's other things we could talk about with you as well. This has been, God, I have to say, a, a true gift to speak with you today. There were questions I had, didn't even know they were still there, that you've actually answered, which is quite incredible. I'm leaving this meeting renewed in a few ways, which is really interesting. And I hope that our audience takes what's been discussed and, and all the wonderful gems that Sarah has, Sarah has offered you. Uh, take any of them and tuck them away for the days that you need that little extra bit of help. I know I've got a big tool chest these days and it definitely comes in handy. Thank you so much. Sarah Gare has been our guest today. I'm Elaine Lindsay. Suicides and forgiveness. We look forward to seeing you next time. And as always, let me say to you, make the very best of your today, every day. And we'll see you next time.